0: I sneak into your room when you are asleep, Mary monkey. I've been doing it for weeks now, since the end of summer. You're so pretty when you're asleep. Last night, I pinched your nose shut until you opened your little mouth. Paul Tremblay, a head full of ghosts. Welcome to Books in the Freezer, a podcast focusing on the deliciously disturbing world of horror fiction. I'm one of your hosts, Stephanie.
1: And I'm your other host, Rachel. Once again, we are thrilled to bring you all a bonus episode featuring one of our favorite authors. Grounded in reality, his stories have emotional depth with situations that often lead to devastation, or as we like to say, a gut punch moment. So let's begin our conversation with the talented Paul Tremblay, author of A Head Full of Ghosts, Disappearance of Devil's Rock, and Cabin at the End of the World on this bonus episode of Books in the Freezer. So, Paul, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Sure. Thank you, Stephanie and Rachel, for
2: having me. I'm excited to be here. I've never put a book in a freezer, but maybe I will.
1: So as people are listening to this, Cabin at the End of the World has just been released today, June 26. I kind of hate to shatter the illusion of the podcast, but we're technically recording this a little bit beforehand because you didn't agree to Skype with us at midnight on the release of your book. But are you excited about that release? It's coming up pretty quick.
2: Yes, people of the future buy the book.
1: (laughs) I'm just going to ask, do you get excited or more nervous in the weeks leading up?
2: Oh, definitely both. Yeah. I mean, I I would hope that feeling never sort of goes away. You know, sometimes like, oh, you know, I've been through it before, but I mean, every step of the process is still super exciting to me. Like when I first see the cover art that the publisher comes up with, you know, I send it to people that I know and, you know, I post it and, you know, the first time you get like the arc and hopefully in a week, week and a half, I'm actually going to get the hardcovers, you know, a few weeks before they're actually released. So I'm really looking forward to that day. So yeah, I'm totally excited You know, and nervous because, you know, I want the book to do well and hopefully more people than not will like the book or not hate me for the book.
1: (laughs) No, that's exciting. And we'll get into the specifics of Cabin a little bit later in the episode. But spoiler alert, both Stephanie and I absolutely loved it. I was just saying to Stephanie that I think this one's my personal favorite of your three. We both read all three of your horror books and love them all. But this one for me is just such a, what we call like a Rachel book. So (laughs) rest assured that it was like a five-star gushing review
2: Thank you. That's wonderful to hear. I'm you know, so
0: pleased and, and humbled. Yeah, definitely a five star book. Definitely a freezer book, by the way. Yes, <laughs>
1: it's great to have you on this show, just because Stephanie has been campaigning for everyone in our corner of the internet to be reading your book for years now. And she single-handedly on, uh, we call it BookTube. It's YouTube book reviewers. And she did a review of Head Full of Ghosts years ago now. And because of her, I know so many people who have read that book saying, well, Stephanie told us we had to read it. So whatever the internet version of hand-selling a book is, that's been Stephanie. Oh,
2: wow. Well, that's awesome. Thank you, Stephanie. I really appreciate
1: it. It's one of my
0: favorites, but Cabin at the end of the world definitely came in at like a very close second. Like they're battling at the top.
2: If I can say so myself, that's kind of how I feel about the two books.
1: It's like your children. It's like, how do you choose your favorite?
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, I have a favorite child. I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) No. Yeah, absolutely.
0: So we'll start off with a couple just more general questions, and then we'll have kind of book-specific questions going in. So we got to get the usual ones out of the way. So what is your relationship with horror growing up? Did you consume a lot of horror as a child or a teen?
2: Yeah, I definitely did, although I wasn't really much of a reader when I was a child and a teen. I grew up in the 80s, and where I grew up in Beverly, like I feel like cable TV came to our neighborhood fairly early compared to a lot of other places in the country for whatever reason. So... I don't know, I was just watching HBO, and when they first came on, they only had like maybe 10 movies, so I felt like they would be showing all the same movies all the time. So for me, my first horror exposure was all movies, and even like locally, just in and around Boston, there was a Saturday afternoon program before cable. I'm aging myself here, but it was called Creature Double Feature, and it was on Saturday afternoons, and they would show two horror movies, and the first movie was usually a Godzilla movie or a Kaiju And the second movie was usually like a hammer horror film or something that was actually really scary. So I had a love and terrified relationship with horror as a kid. You know, I'd love to watch the Godzilla movies especially, but, you know, I was also a big time scaredy cat, (laughs) afraid of the dark, afraid of my basement. Really? Yeah, I would send my brother, we shared a bedroom and he was five years younger than me, but he was like my built-in canary in the coal mine. (laughs) So I would send him upstairs first, and if nothing happened to him, then I knew it was okay for me to go upstairs.
1: Oh, what a nice big brother. (laughs) Yeah, I know, right? Really protecting the little one there.
2: (laughs) And it's so strange that my brother became like this rabid horror fan as well. So for me, my love of horror definitely came early, and it was mainly, you know, through movies. And it wasn't until my early 20s that I actually fell in love with reading and I fell in love with reading because of Stephen King, of course. My girlfriend at the time, who is now my wife, you know, gave me The Stand for my 22nd birthday, and I just inhaled it. From there, I just started reading all the King I could find, and you know, went to Peter Straub or Joey Jackson, and just you know, fell in love with reading.
0: The Stand is a bit of a chunker, too.
2: Yeah. Oh no, it was definitely uh, a long novel. I still remember the first time reading it. It's funny, you know, what you remember from certain books. I mean, I'm sure all of us at this point have read, you know, over a thousand, maybe two thousand books, but you know, there's certain ones that for whatever reason you remember where you were or what you were doing mm-hmm. or even like who you were when you're reading them obviously the stand being one of you know the first books that I read by choice you know when I was in high school I, I was a good student I would read everything the teachers assigned but really the stand was the first thing that turned me into a reader for pleasure
1: I'm just impressed that your girlfriend gifted you a horror book I can see why you married <laughs> her <laughs> she sounds like a winner
2: Yeah, I was a math major in college and she was an English major and I used to make fun of her and all English majors because I was like, oh, you guys just make stuff up as you go. Like, there's no right or wrong answers. And, you know, because I was math, I was like, you know, we actually have answers and and do things in math. (laughs) She had grown up reading Stephen King. And so now all these years later, sort of our jobs have like flipped a little bit. I mean, even though I still teach high school math, I'm obviously writing and she was an English major, but now she's a marketing director for a chain of restaurants in New England. So she actually has to deal with like real numbers. Yeah, so it's kind of funny. The whole like how you English majors make it all up. Now that's what I do.
0: (laughs) That is really funny, especially because I know that it's not accurate, but like that left brain, right brain dichotomy that like, you know, some people are more like logic driven and you, you know, were a math major, but now, you know, you have a writing career and that seems a lot more right brain, more dealing with creative. Oh,
2: absolutely. (laughs) I have found some other people sort of like me and insofar as that they studied math or engineering before they started writing so there's a few of us out there
0: and you do play with ambiguity quite a bit in your stories i've always wanted to know how often fans ask you for a definitive answer on something that you kept vague in a book
2: (laughs) i definitely get asked a lot about a head full of ghosts it seems like i've had a lot of people like you know you just send me a a twitter message or a facebook message you know saying hey this is what happened right (laughs) And like, yeah i will never tell You know, it's a little bit tricky and maybe even risky to do it at a novel length because you're asking a lot from the reader to read, you know, 300 pages and then not necessarily give them an answer at the end. So I knew when you do that, you know, you risk, you know, pissing people off. (laughs) So you have to make sure that the ambiguity part of it isn't just like a gimmick or a trick, that it's there, you know, to serve the purpose of the book. It has to be part of the atmosphere. It has to feel natural. It has to feel right to the story so hopefully that's what it does for people who read the book
1: well we promise that we won't beg you for all the vague details in your books although we're kind of tempted to because we do have you captive for a little bit yeah but i guess why do you like writing ambiguous stories are those the kind of stories that you like to read
2: i definitely do enjoy reading them i mean although not everything i'm reading is ambiguous and it's funny my editor has taken to jokingly calling me mr ambiguous horror
0: i love that
2: Which makes me a little anxious because I know I can't do that forever. You know, when we talk about Cabin later. Yeah, kind of like how my three recent books sort of fit together like thematically. But I also know at the same time, not every novel I can write or will write can do the ambiguous things. I kind of feel like people would think it's like I'm becoming like a one trick pony kind of thing. But anyway, I think I tend to gravitate toward it in the novel form, especially because my daily life, I'm very sort of rational. And 99% of the time, I don't believe in the supernatural. So like if I'm going to commit to this big giant story there's always sort of that yammering math teacher rational guy in my head like ah you know this is supernatural it, it really wouldn't happen so a lot of the time I'm just like arguing with that part of my brain trying to make it so the rational side has an argument within the novel if that makes sense and also so I mentioned the 99% of the time I'm I don't believe in the supernatural but there's a 1% of the time and it's usually If I'm home alone at night and there's weird noises in the house or I've had a terrible dream and I wake up and I'm totally freaked out during those times, I believe. So I think kind of how I approach it is I feel like if I were to experience like a supernatural event or something supernatural, I think I would have a hard time or anybody would have a hard time recognizing was the supernatural. I guess I'm trying to say that I'm, I think I try to approach the supernatural in like a naturalistic or realistic way, even though, you know, it may or may not exist. That's what really interests me, and it has for these three books anyway.
1: No, I get that because I think your books have a lot of appeal for skeptics or for people who, like you said, don't have that supernatural bent. We always are talking about on the podcast that a lot of people are not scared by supernatural things that if you don't believe in vampires and zombies, etc right it's hard to always get behind a story. and I think that your stories like we mentioned at the top are always grounded enough in reality that sometimes it's like the people and the situations that make it so terrifying. And I think it, that really appeals to both of us.
2: Well, thank you. Yeah, especially with these three novels, you know, A Head Full of Ghosts, Disappearance of Devil's Rock, and The Cabinet at the End of the World. All three sort of feature families in crisis. It's really, for me, every story, it's a little bit different, but it's like, you know, how they deal with it. Even like reality and identity and, you know, as much as we like to think those things are sort of written in stone or almost tangible, they are a lot more Untrustworthy, if that makes any sense, without even getting supernatural. Just you know, the idea of you know existence and you know, especially identity. That that stuff fascinates me. You know, just the idea of how much of who you are depends on what other people tell you in your own memories. But we, we know now that you know our memories, especially the older ones, aren't very accurate after a certain amount of time. You know, they get you know changed by what's happened to you. They get changed by other people who you know, may have experienced the same thing. So. I don't know. I kind of feel like, you know, as a horror writer, why not take advantage of that? Our actual usual state of ambiguity. It just seems like a natural thing to me.
0: Yeah, I loved that about Mary's perspective in A Head Full of Ghosts. Thank you. Just that she was very upfront about that. Like, you know, I have watched the show. It's been a long time, so take it for what it is. (laughs) Right.
2: Yeah. Granted, it was a traumatic thing that she lived through, but, you know, she was eight, you know, and it's 15 years later. You know, even if it was very traumatic, you know how much of it exactly is she going to remember? And how much of it has been changed by what she's went through? And how much of it has been changed because there was a television show about her own life? And it's not even that she's necessarily being purposefully unreliable. It's just how can she not be unreliable, even though obviously she had to live through it?
1: So we saw that you're on the board of directors for the Shirley Jackson Awards. Do you feel like those awards highlight different kind of horror stories than other award shows? Like say, the Bram Stokers?
2: I think when they first started, that was sort of a little bit of the goal. In the interest of full disclosure, I mean, I left the HWA about 10 or 11 years ago, and I I really, I left them over an argument over the Stokers. I wasn't happy with how the votes went down, and I wasn't happy with sort of the lack of representation of people who were not members of the HWA. Especially in the early to mid-2000s, there was a five, six, seven-year stretch where I forget the numbers I had actually computed them, but like an insane percentage, like 95% of the winners were members of the HWA. And there were a lot of people writing horror who aren't members of the HWA. And there was a weird sort of confluence of events, the International Horror Guild Awards. You know, they were a great award run by Paula Grand and, and some others, and they were closing up shop. So myself and, you know, John Langen and Sarah Langen and And uh, Joanne Cox and Brett Cox were like, geez, you know, this great award is, you know, going to leave a void. You know, we want to start an award. And it wasn't so much to be an anti-Stoker, but it was more that we wanted to just further promote horror. You know, my personal agenda was horror as a genre has a really large umbrella. And there's a lot of things that I consider horror that just don't say horror on the spine. And I think horror has been healthy for a while. It's just... You know, maybe the big New York City publishers aren't calling this book a horror novel. It doesn't mean it's not a horror novel. So, yeah, we got into it just by wanting to, you know, promote more works of horror. And I, I do think the Stoker Awards in recent years have made great strides in helping to make sure that non-members do get nominated and actually win. And I mean, proof is in the pudding. I think the last two novel winners just for one category, for example, you know, aren't members. So, yeah, I'm certainly happy to see that happening with the Stokers.
1: The nominees for 2017 have been announced. And so since you're not a judge, are we allowed to ask who you're rooting for?
2: I guess I won't say too much. I mean, but people who are like my close friends, like Stephen Grand Jones, you know, I would love to see him win. But, you know, there's so many great collections. You know, that whole category is amazing. I think I've read all those books. You know, personally I'm pulling a little bit for Nadia Bulkin. She's great. And you know, I wrote the intro to that collection.
1: I've read that. That whole collection is fantastic. Yeah,
2: no, she's an amazing writer, but the jurors did a great job. You know, they came up with, you know, a really cool ballot that includes a bunch of different kinds of horror stories and different kinds of writers. It's very eclectic. Yeah, so, I mean, so far, that award, I think, is doing pretty well. Hopefully it keeps going.
1: So if you don't officially want to plug individual books for the nominees, (laughs) do you maybe want to just kind of give our listeners some recommendations of some maybe either newer or underhyped books that you've enjoyed recently?
2: Yeah, okay. So I mentioned Nadia's. You know, I think everyone should read. She said destroy another collection that I read within the past year, year and a half. I think it came out in twenty seventeen. is called Things We Lost in the Fire by Mariana Enriquez. One of my favorite short story collections that I've read in like the past ten years. I think it's just amazing. She's an Argentinian writer. It's her first full book that's been uh, translated into English. She's a very popular writer in Argentina. She really almost writes like socio-political Shirley Jackson, but even saying that, like she has her own style. Every story in that book is great. Like it's so rare, I think, to say that. You know, you can have great collections and you know, one or two stories really don't do it for you, but I just really can't say enough about things we lost in the fire. And I recently I read Will Ludwigson's collection, Acres of Perhaps, and that was just a ton of fun. You know, it was dark and sad too. There's a outer limits kind of T V show that's being made, so some of the stories sort of connect to the show. But you know, the stories sort of go off on their own afterwards. But it's just really clever and really smart and I think you guys would connect with sort of like you know, the real emotion at play in those stories.
0: Never heard of that, that sounds really interesting.
2: And one last recommendation for novel. I really did love Dan Schoen's Ill Will. I mean, I don't know if that qualifies as underhyped, but maybe within the horror community, I think. That one maybe didn't get as much hype as it did within the mainstream because Dan Sean isn't necessarily identified as a horror writer, although this book is super dark and it definitely is
0: a horror novel.
1: Oh, we'll have to check out all of those. And if Stephanie's so kind as to put those in the show notes, I will. so everyone else can go <laughs> check them out too.
0: All right. So now
1: going into questions
0: concerning A Head Full of Ghosts, just want to do a quick synopsis for people who have not read it. A head full of ghosts about the Barretts, who seem like a normal suburban New England family until their oldest daughter, Marjorie, begins acting strangely. The parents are growing frustrated with the lack of progress from the doctors, and they reluctantly turn to a Catholic priest who suggests not only exorcism, but that the ordeal be filmed for a reality show. Because of the recent financial troubles, the Barretts take the offer. Fifteen years later, the younger sister, Mary, is talking to the author about what she remembers. Well, first of all, I heard about the film rights for Head Full of Ghosts, so congratulations. Thank you. I really enjoyed Oz Perkins' work on I Am the Pretty Thing That Lives in Your House, and I'm really excited to see it come alive. Oh, yeah. I'm someone who is not familiar with the process of adapting a book, so how much say or control do you have? I mean, do they fill you in on any major decisions like casting or anything or exciting updates as filming goes on?
2: I was gonna make a joke and say that you know I don't know much about it either <laughs> <laughs> so every situation is different but you know I have no contractual say with the head full of ghosts in terms of the right to approve or disapprove of, of a script but that said the producers have been very friendly and the first two screenwriters Ben Collins and Luke Piotrowski were super friendly and I actually I had met him a couple times in Los Angeles so they would give me updates. But they left the project last summer, so since they've left, I really haven't had a ton of contact. But unofficially, I heard things are going well with Osgood rewriting or adding to the screenplay. You know, I love Black Coat's Daughter and, you know, I Am the Pretty Thing. You know, I'm really excited. I hope, and fingers are crossed, that start casting and shooting, you know, hopefully maybe even by the end of this
0: year. That would be amazing. Yeah, that would be awesome. So also a big part of A Head Full of Ghosts is the filming of the reality TV series, The Possession. How much research did you do into reality TV while writing the book? Did you reach out to producers or cameramen about how something like that would be filmed? Or did you like binge watch Real Housewives, (laughs) anything like that?
2: (laughs) Well, I will have to admit that I watched my fair share of reality TV. I went through a phase where I watched the show Survivor every year for a while. You know, even in A Ghosts, I mentioned shows like Finding Bigfoot, which clearly I'd watched with my daughter. So, yeah, at the time, you know, reality TV was a little bit in my, my brain. But I did talk to a friend that graduated college with me. His name is Ken Cornwell, and he has done some work on some reality TV shows, usually like, you know, the home improvement kind of stuff. It wasn't like a, you know, where I sat down with him for an hour. I sent him some pointed questions that I really knew I wanted to have answered over email. You know, he answered them and, you know, it was definitely very helpful.
0: Well, that's really cool that you had that in. And yeah, I mean, Survivor was a big part of my family, too. It was a, a big tradition for a couple of <laughs> years. And readers that have read A Head Full of Ghosts will probably notice the couple nods to Shirley Jackson's We Have Always Lived in the Castle, like the way Mary's name is spelled. How much inspiration was Shirley Jackson in your writing in general or in your life?
2: Absolutely huge for this book. I mean, We Have Always Lived in a Castle. It's, I don't know, a book I've read and reread a bunch of times. You know, Shirley's work, and it's something I don't think I have really done in my work. I don't think I can, which is fine. But I always marvel at how she brings in sort of this wicked satirical sense of humor into her work while still making it really creepy as hell and really emotional as hell, too. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, that book, We've Always Lived in a Castle, is just such a such a magic spell. So, you know, I knew I had the two sisters. And I knew what the beginning was. And I knew I wanted the end to sort of really reflect or pay homage to that book in particular.
0: What? I loved it. I also love we have always lived in the castle. And I did notice I call them horror Easter eggs, like one of the characters being named after you said your friend Stephen Graham Jones. And I noticed I don't know if this was on purpose. Navidson was that from House of Leaves? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Okay.
2: (laughs) Well, I mean, part of the fun of the book was once I realized that I wasn't gonna like shy away from the exorcist. I mean, you know, how do you tell a possession story without sort of that elephant in the room, that vomit, oh, yeah. the vomiting <laughs> elephant in the room? So, so once it's like, well, you know, I'm going to have this blogger and she's going to comment on what's going on in the book. That really opened up idea of, okay, I'm going to really roll around as many of the tropes as I could. And in doing so, I tried to raise the ambiguity of what's real and what's not real. You know, is, is something supernatural happening or is, is it all like this sort of con or is she, you know, uh, just mentally ill? So for me, as the horror fan, as the horror geek, that was the fun part, just to get to roll around in all my, you know, influences and all my favorites and even talk about like some of the things that I don't like about a lot of the horror novels and movies that have come before. Other Easter eggs. I think Navidson, I'd started off as Dr. Strancis after Simon Strancis, Canadian horror author, but I changed it to Navidson because, you know, I definitely wanted a nod to a House of Leaves, but I left the doctor physically described as what Simon looks like. And the parents, Sarah and John, I originally was going to have the parents be Langan, but I thought that would be too on the nose for people <laughs> <laughs> to name them after John and Sarah That The two parents still have John and Sarah's name. And the parent name comes from a Richard Matheson novel, Hell House.
0: Yeah, as a reader, that was definitely fun to like try to figure out stuff like that and say, like, hey, is that a nod to this? Yeah. I also loved the blog post entries. I kind of liked the idea that like, we as the audience also know kind of the ins and outs of possession stories and it was really good to get that skeptical perspective in there and it was also great because i've noticed a big trend in the whole you know episode recap i'm watching a show as an adult that i like when i was younger and i'm bringing my older eyes into this and you know reassessing which seems to be a premise for you know a lot of successful podcasts and article series and why do you think nostalgia has become such a big part of our culture recently
2: geez i think part of it is So many of the people who are now creating the books and the movies, you know, that we read and watch, are people who grew up in the '80s, and I don't know. To me, the '80s really were, if not the birth of sort of media, as to what media has become. It was certainly at the beginning of it, you know, before it just exploded. Obviously, one of you know the other big explosions with social media and the internet in general. You know, even when I look back into the 80s, you know, I remember watching, I already mentioned it, watching cable TV and watching all these movies. And I think that's a much different experience than people who who were writing in the 80s. You know, they weren't necessarily thinking about movies, but probably the books they read. So, I don't know, I just feel like so many of us are just this repository of media. It's hard not to use it some way. And it gets maybe reused or refashioned as nostalgia a little bit. I have a love-hate relationship with nostalgia. It's obviously fun. You know, I really had a fun time watching Stranger Things, for example. But at the same time, it's certainly natural to look back. But, you know, as as a writer, you can get too dangerous to always be looking back. You want to be looking forward. You know, so A Head Full of Ghosts, I allowed myself to look back. But also, I think, even though I was looking back, I kind of felt like more I was looking at the present. But yeah, nostalgia, (laughs) it's crazy now.
1: So my question about Head Full of Ghosts also technically applies to Cabin at the End of the World. But Uh both Stephanie and I have gone on the record saying multiple times that we hate child narrators. (laughs) So I think it's really funny that we both love your books which are often told partially from the perspective of children. We'll get to it a bit more later, but I, and I think Stephanie did too, I loved When in Cabin. But my question is basically, how do you manage to write child narrators without making them super annoying? Is that something you consciously think (laughs) about?
2: I definitely try not to make them sound like twee. I'll never forget when I was in a fairly early short story of mine called It's Against the Law to Feed the Ducks, and it took me a while to write it, when I first started writing it, it was going to be from the point of view of a five-year-old kid. When I first started writing it, I tried to restrain myself to what would his thoughts be, you know, and only have that. It's like, oh, man, you can't write from his point of view sort of solely. It, it would make it unreadable. Like, you don't want to go in and read, you know, 8,000 words of what a five-year-old is thinking. So that sort of lesson sort of stuck with me. So with The Head Full of Ghosts, yeah, is eight years old, but it's really Mary as the 23-year-old remembering herself as the eight-year-old. So while you, you had Mary's eight-year-old dialogue, you didn't have her eight-year-old thoughts, if that makes sense. But even if you did have her eight-year-old thoughts, they were still being told to you by the older Mary. So maybe that was part of the not being annoying part of it. I think so. Yeah, I mean, I'm not 100% sure. I'm, I'm very gratified to hear that they're not annoying. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's just a function of you know taking them more seriously obviously I know they're kids and I know there's sort of limits to what they know and can do while I'm writing them. I'm thinking about them as people, as you know, what I would be thinking when I was at that age. That said, i got some comments from people on disappearance at devil's rock about Tommy and his two friends being really annoying. And I was actually glad like, well, seventh and eighth grade boys are really annoying.
1: Yeah. Have you talked to a teenage boy? Yeah. Right. Yeah.
0: I actually did think that while I was reading and I'm like, I can't say it's not realistic.
1: Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, that ties in really nicely because we wanted to segue over to some okay. questions about Disappearance at Devil's Rock and for someone All who right. hasn't read it yet. It's about a mother whose 14-year-old son has gone missing after he was last seen hanging out in the woods with his friends. The story is told from the perspective of the mother and also her daughter who are dealing with the devastation of what happens to a family when a child goes missing.
0: So I really enjoyed Disappearance at Devil's Rock. And that might be because I'm a parent. And as a parent, something happening to your kids is your biggest fear. And you mentioned that Tommy wasn't based off of your son, but after a neighbor friend. So (laughs) did the separation help the writing process for you?
2: Yeah, I I definitely felt like I had to, especially coming off A Head Full of Ghosts, where I had taken a lot of my daughter and put her into Mary. You know, and some of my son too, but my daughter was Mary's age when I was writing it. So a lot of the quirky stuff that Mary did just came sort of essentially right out of my household. You know, so there was no way I was going to take my son, who was around the age of Tommy at the time, you know, and have him disappear. And then, you know, spoiler warnings, you find out bad stuff happens. Yeah, I had to detach from that. If anything, I feel like I made Tommy a little bit more like I was when I was his age. But if nothing else, physically, I had to make him look like somebody else you know, so when I'm seeing this character in my head, I was seeing somebody else that wasn't related to anyone that I love.
0: Yeah, it would be really tough. <laughs> yeah. And my next question is a lot of horror novels shy away from using technology and stories because oftentimes problems can be easily solved with a smartphone. But Disappearance at Devil's Rock, you know, has technology, their smartphones, their Snapchat. What are the pros of including modern technology in horror versus, you know, get taking that away from them? <laughs>
2: Right. I'm glad you asked that. I'll try to go off on a big rant. <laughs>
0: <laughs> rant away.
2: <laughs> I feel like I'm trying to write stories for people who are reading now. You know, obviously you have to do what fits the story. It's not to say you can't write a period piece like Josh Malin just wrote, you know, a Western. You're not going to throw a cell phone in there or, or there's no need to. But, you know, if you're setting your story in today and you're going to attempt to be somewhat realistic, it's like hard to avoid it. So the idea that makes me mad is when I hear and it seems to come up a lot more in horror discussions for whatever reason. The idea of, you know, having to write deathless prose, like, oh, yeah, you can't include like Twitter or, or Snapchat or this other stuff. Otherwise, people won't be able to read your book in 10, 20, 30 years. And yeah, it just sounds so asinine to me and so presumptuous to think first that, A, anyone's going to read your story now, never mind 10, 20, 30 years from now. It's hard enough to write a story that people are going to read and connect with now. And even like the idea of deathless prose itself makes no sense to me. Where's the cutoff line? Are you going to cut it off at telephones? Are you going to cut it off at, you know, horseless carriage? I mean, what's the universal definition of deathless prose? All that said, if you're going to add the stuff, though, it has to serve the story. It just can't be there as, like, decorations. So, you know, in Disappearance of Devil's Rock, Snapchat becomes, like, an important part of the story. It actually muddies the investigations. You know, the tweets that people are getting actually makes it seem like there's this weird shadowy figure, or more likely that that's happening, as opposed to making things more clear and that was sort of the point of using you know the technology that the idea is like no even though we have all this surveillance and instant connection it isn't making life easier it isn't making things clearer yeah so i definitely don't shy away from using it and i think if you do a good enough job as a writer and universe willing we're still around in 30 years for people to read books i think if you do a good enough job making it a part of the story people will not have a hard time reading it i definitely agree well thanks
0: I thought it played in really well with the story and I like yeah the tweet was like the hashtag trending it just all seemed very realistic like yeah this could be happening now.
1: And even if we're so lucky to have it you know be read years later which I definitely think it will be that is part of this period of time so that will make it realistic just like you would have a buggy in a historical horror novel so I think it makes sense.
2: See you guys understand.
1: <laughs> we get you. <ya. laughs> So now let's talk a little bit about Cabin at the End of the World. I need to gush a little bit oh thanks (laughs) for anyone who is not aware cabin at the end of the world is again coming out today june 26 it's about two dads that take their young adopted daughter on vacation at a cabin when a group shows up with a plan to save the world by asking them to make an impossible choice i really lean towards not saying too much when it comes to describing this book because i went in fairly blind and i thought it was such a good experience you don't want to give away too much. I don't know. Would you feel the same way, Stephanie? Yeah, like you can't.
0: That's all we can say. <laughs> <laughs> Synopsis way. Yes. I agree.
1: <laughs> so, yeah, Stephanie, if you want to go first, I love the word you used to describe this novel.
0: So when I read this, it was a very like stressful experience. Like I was reading in bed, but I had to put my Kindle down and like take a lap around my room a little bit because so I kind of felt like I was trapped in a hot cabin with these characters. So I'm hoping that's the reaction you wanted from your readers.
2: <laughs> yeah. No, I, I've been getting the stress thing, which is really cool. You know, cause when you're writing, you have no idea. I feel like I'm a terrible judge of what's scary or what's intense. I feel like I know what's disturbing, but no. So it's very gratifying to hear that it is affecting people so far in that way.
1: Yeah, Stephanie used the word claustrophobic and I think it describes the book perfectly. You're just in this very tight, situation where there is not a lot of room to breathe and that's where I came in that reading this book I literally found myself holding my breath like I was sitting at my lunch reading it and I suddenly (laughs) had to take this like gasping breath it was so embarrassing because I was just like holding my breath for the characters there's something about a book that makes me just really scared what's going to happen to characters Mm -hmm. which I think is something that tends to happen when I get really invested like I just care about them because I think you did a really good job with some character development. Which leads into the fact that you did some fantastic, diverse representation in this book. You, of course, as I mentioned, are featuring a gay married couple who are raising their adopted Chinese daughter. It would have been so easy to write, quote-unquote, traditional male-female couple raising their own biological child. So why did you make those choices with your characters?
2: Well I first had the idea of, you know, a family at the cabin and the four strangers and, you know, that number... Thought giving too much away, you know, instantly meant something to me. Mm-hmm. So when I had the idea for this book, geez, when was it? It was May 2016, I think. I don't know. And it was in the middle of the election cycle. And I feel like we sort of continued to be in this socio political mess. You know, besides being a horror novel or a suspense novel, I, I really, without trying to get too didactic, I wanted the book to serve as an allegory for sort of what we're going in through in the West, especially socio politically. So. I mean, in that sense, it made sense for me to have, you know, the characters be who, who they are. And it really also became a big part of the plot. Like without, again, without giving too much yeah. away, I think it, those people being who they are could be a reason why, if you didn't want to have a supernatural explanation, mm-hmm. not a spoiler. I do the ambiguity thing and, you know, the dads being who they are serve as a reason why the four strangers are there potentially. And it also makes it harder to believe that the people who are there are good for any other reason besides, you know, evil or something like that. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of a little bit of, I guess, the decision process that went into, you know, having those as the characters.
1: Well, I love that you made those choices. I have a best friend who is gay himself and has been looking to get into horror because he's been listening to the podcast. And he's always looking for representation himself. He Mm -hmm. just prefers to, you know, read stories about people that relate to him. So I'm really excited after reading this. I'm like, this is perfect. So this is going to be his first horror novel. I don't know if he knows that yet, but (laughs) this is the book I'm going to be putting in his hand in a couple weeks. So I'm excited for that. And then... Even for myself, as someone who is looking at different options for having children, it's something that hit personally home to me. So I love the fact that you're going to really reach different audiences that don't always get books written about them. You just don't even see adoption storylines. So I just want to say thank you for that.
2: Well, well sure. Well, thanks. Through the writing process, I think I was most terrified of writing the adoption experience because I, I don't, not that I have experience, you know, being a married you know, gay man either. You know, I, I certainly wouldn't. Say that I, I totally understand that experience because I don't. I can intellectualize being a straight, you know, cisgendered, you know, male, white male. You know, I can't fully understand what someone who isn't white, cisgendered male goes through. You know, I can empathize and do the best I can there. But to me, that's sort of the magic of writing is, you know, if you approach, you know, all your characters with empathy and leave enough space for the reader to bring, you know, her or his own experience, you know, that can make the characters come to life. You know, all that sort of awkwardly said. I definitely was nervous about writing about Went's experience so that was sort of a tricky balance to make the readers you know sympathize identify with the characters and even not sympathize but empathize with some of the invaders too all the while you know all these terrible things happening around them
1: so i guess talking about all three of your horror novels together i've heard your books described as thrillers or suspense and saying oh well this isn't horror or this is horror Do you have a preference when it comes to labels? Do you consider some of your books to be horror and others to be suspense? Or do you flat across the board give them one label? I guess, how do you feel about all that?
2: I'm of mixed minds on all of it. And honestly, it depends like when you ask me (laughs) how hot it is outside, (laughs) how hungry I am. Generally, I try not to worry about what people call them. I mean, I'm happy for people to call them horror novels, you know, with as much baggage as that term comes with it. I've sort of come to grips with that. Yeah, and if the publisher has to call it suspense or something else to sell, I mean, whatever. I just really want people to read the book. You know, I'm happy to be called a horror writer. I'm also just happy to be called a writer as well. I certainly consider *A Head Full of Ghosts* a horror story, and *Cabin at the End of the World* definitely as well. You know, I can see *Disappearance of Devil's Rock* as a little bit of more of a quieter thing with some real horrific scenes. But you know, if someone doesn't want to say that whole book is a horror novel, I, I can totally get that.
1: I also noticed the other thing is that all three of your books have really long titles. Is that (laughs) something you like? I didn't really notice it until we were preparing for this episode and I had to actually practice saying them all out loud one after another.
2: That's funny. Well, I will tell you that the working title for The Cabinet at the End of the World was The Four. So the whole time I wrote the book, it was The Four and my publisher wanted me to change the title and I had a little bit of a hard time with it. I really do like The cab at the End of the World, so I feel lucky that I had a sort of a backup title that I really liked. So I almost had a short title for a book.
1: So close.
2: (laughs) Yeah. You know, A Head Full of Ghosts is named after a bad religion song. My head is full of ghosts. And I'll admit, there's part of me that doesn't like Disappearance of Devil's Rock as a title. I really struggled with the title on that one. My advice to any writers out there, and the advice I'm going to try to live by, is never write a book without a title first. I wrote Disappearance of Devil's Rock without a title. I just called it like Borderland or something, which I knew it wasn't going to be the title. We had so many back and forths on titles. Yeah, I mean, I'm okay with Disappearance of Devil's Rock, but I don't know. It sounds a little bit like Hardy Boys fan fiction, which is <laughs> the worst thing in the world, I guess. But
0: That would be awesome. I'd be yeah. down for that. <laughs> Does the same person do all your cover art?
2: No, I don't think it's the same person. They have like an art department. And actually, I had some input on the cabin cover, like the first couple they sent me I wasn't crazy about. because so, you know, obviously, I really loved A Head Full of Ghosts. And, you know, I liked uh, Devil's Rock as well. My only suggestion for the cab was like, why don't we take something and turn it on its side? Like, that could be my shtick. <laughs> you know, the cover on its side kind of thing. You know, because obviously Head Full of Ghosts is a hallway on its side. And even Disappearance of Devil's Rock, the tree branches are kind of going across. So, you know, I have a little bit of a theme. It is funny, though. I think just like a month ago, some people online were like, oh, that's what the cover of a Head Full of Ghosts was. I was like, really? That was me. <laughs> that was you? <laughs>
0: I was watching Rachel's review on YouTube, and I tilted my head a little bit to the side while I was watching it. And I was like, that's a picture. It's a hallway. (laughs) Like, I've been looking at this book cover for years.
2: (laughs) What did you think it was? I need to know.
0: I just, like, it must be, like, nonsense. I thought it was, like, a bunker, and I was, like, that doesn't really make a lot of sense. (laughs) But I was, like, whatever. It probably was something I didn't get.
1: Yeah, I remember that day when you're, like, it's sideways. Look at it sideways. I was, like, whoa. (laughs) So, you know those really slow readers who take a while to, like, pick up the nuances? Yeah, you're talking to those ones today. I'm sorry.
2: Or even, like, when I showed the cover to, like, kids in my class one day, they were, like, yeah, what is it? I don't see it. <laughs> and then I turned it. They're
0: like, oh. <laughs> do your students think you're super cool?
2: No, I'm their math teacher. It's awful.
0: <laughs> Maybe some do.
2: No, like I've said this joke a lot of times, but it's worth one more time. I have in like low moments, like said in front of like a classroom of snotty ninth graders. Like, no, you don't understand. People outside of the school think I'm cool. You know, they, they <laughs> listen to me. They're like, no. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. It's a good humbling experience. One, I'm glad to have the summer break of (laughs) coming up shortly.
0: I can imagine. We did have one Patreon supporter question, which was about your pets, which I know we see your dog quite a bit on your social media. So do you have any other pets or tell us a little bit about your pets?
2: (laughs) Yeah. So uh, Holly, we've had her for two years now. She's a rescue age unknown. Their best guess when we got her was like five to seven years. And she's a lot of fun. I never thought I would like having a little dog because she's only like 15 pounds. But I've enjoyed taking her for a walk and not being taken for a drag. <laughs> <laughs> My previous pre- rascal was a great dog, but he was bigger, like 45 pounds. And even till like his sick dying days, like taking him for a walk, he would just be like pulling on the leash. Yeah. So Holly's a lot of fun. So, you know, we just have Holly, although we do have a goldfish that will not die. <laughs> I'm not actively rooting for it to die. I'm just saying it will not die. My father bought it for my you know, daughter one birthday. And this thing is going to be like seven or eight years old now. It's ridiculous. Oh, wow.
1: <laughs> and it's not a
2: nice goldfish. Like we've tried putting other fish in it and it kills them. <laughs> we've put like snails in there too. And it's, you know, like it goes at the snails too. I mean, it has no teeth, but just like knocks them and pecks them. And it would prevent the other fish from getting food. So Laird Barron once told me he was going to write a story. But actually he did. He did write a story with like a creepy goldfish that I think that was based on mine.
1: I was just going to say that is the perfect (laughs) suggestion for what your next story should be about. (laughs) Oh, and I did have a
0: question. You have a short story collection coming out and I heard that the character Mary makes a reappearance.
2: Yes. So it's going to be called Growing Things and Other Stories. The first story is going to be the Growing Things short story that, you know, is used in A Head Full of Ghosts or Marjorie tells Mary about, you know, the growing plants. Um, Ah. And it becomes like, you know, this theme throughout the novel. That short story actually existed prior to A Head Full of Ghosts. It was published in like 2010. And it featured two sisters and, you know, family. They weren't named Marjorie and Mary in the story. I do that sometimes. I'll take stuff I've done in short stories and end up like sneaking them back into my novel. It's almost like I pre-worked it out a little bit. So anyway, that'll be the first story in the collection. And the two sisters are named Marjorie and Mary. And then the last story in the collection is something brand new. And it features Mary. She's at a, you know, a big convention. It's after You know, the the biography of her life has come out and she's confronted by a really rabid fan. And she decides to tell the fan like a Marjorie Mary style story. So that's really sort of the bulk of the story is Mary telling this Mary Marjorie style
0: story. That's exciting.
2: Yeah, thanks. The other sort of original piece is a novella. It's really kind of strange. It's called Notes from the Dog Walkers. And the story is told via notes left by dog walkers but the story ends up having connections to both a head full of ghosts and disappearance of devil's rock
0: i'm very excited well thanks (laughs) me too we love (laughs) short stories i also like really love stories told in like emails or notes
2: oh yeah i love different sort of presentations like that absolutely yeah
0: Yeah.
1: so do we have time for a quick lightning round
0: sure yeah algebra or geometry geometry
2: hands down
1: (laughs) dracula or frankenstein
2: frankenstein I said that like almost like, oh yeah, Frankenstein, but yeah, <laughs> Frankenstein I guess.
1: Yeah, I'm not hearing a lot of enthusiasm there.
2: Well, I think it's less about my like I don't really love Dracula. Although Dracula stuff used to scare the crap out of me as a kid. Like seeing Christopher Lee in those kind of movies. But the Frankenstein, you know, novel and, and the James Whale movie are, you know, some of my favorite things, so Frankenstein.
0: Marvel or D C?
2: Marvel. The movies are so much better. And Spider Man was my first love as a kid, so
0: Steak or lobster?
2: Steak. I don't
0: like lobster. What? You're in New England. Yeah. I know. <laughs> I
2: like most other seafood, but yeah, no, no lobsters. No giant ocean spiders.
0: <laughs> that's what they are.
2: Actually, that's, that's a crab, I guess. So I don't know what, what a lobster is. It's, it's a, like a
0: scorpion. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> the Thing or The Shining?
2: Oh, I have so much love for both, but I'll have to go with The Thing. Because so I think The Thing is my all time favorite.
1: Which is creepier, clowns or dolls?
2: Dolls. Definitely dolls. I never really had the creepy clown thing, but dolls, absolutely.
1: Dolls are terrifying.
2: An older uncle gave, like my brother's got younger kids than mine, like, you know, super young, like four and three, et cetera, gave them like this really old doll. And he just sent me the picture of it. And he said, you know, his daughter had said, she you know, won't stop looking at me. (laughs) So he took (laughs) it out of the room. Like, I don't blame you. I posted the picture of this doll on Instagram and everyone freaked out, like, burn it. It's us. (laughs) Terrifying.
0: (laughs) I think the talking Tina from the Twilight Zone ruined me oh yeah so coke or pepsi
2: oh coke and it's like it couldn't be more coke like when i go out to eat at restaurants i ask if it's coke or pepsi and i'll only get a soda if it's coke i am full on coke
0: my, my husband is the exact opposite oh <laughs> he'll no do the scoff <laughs>
2: <flick>. <laughs> when the apocalypse happens it's gonna be me versus him <laughs> is that really weird to say but now i'm going to imagine this
0: nope go for
2: it <laughs> That would be like a great two-page story. Do it. Coke (laughs) versus Pepsi at the end of the world. There you go.
1: Oh, yes. Perfect. (laughs) Jason or Freddy?
2: I'm not a fan of slasher movies. My brother was huge into all of them. So, yeah, I'm going to say Freddy, though, because Freddy gave me nightmares. Like, the first Nightmare on Elm Street was absolutely terrifying. So, a slight nod to Freddy.
0: Short stories or lengthy novels? Is this a cheat if I say short novels or I'm not
2: allowed I have to say <laughs> short stories or a lengthy novel?
0: You can say short novel.
2: I'm going to say short novels. then. Okay, yeah.
1: I agree. <laughs> Those are always the winner for me. It's like the sweet spot. And Cabin was like that perfect length.
2: I can't write long books.
1: I'm okay with that. <laughs> I don't do well with long books. Yeah.
2: Especially you know, when you want to read so many books, like, you know, if you have like a Goodreads page, it's all about how many books did you read this year? It's like, I can't read this 900 page thing because it's going to take up all that time, I could have been reading shorter books. Actually, I made time this past winter to read a really long book. I had two weeks off of school. It's like, I'm, damn it, I'm going to read, you know, Roberto Bolano's 2666. And I'm very glad I did. I forgot how much fun it was to actually be immersed in a book for like a week or two. You know, I don't want to do that every read, but it was fun to sort of have that experience again.
1: And finally, we normally end our episodes by recommending some creepy media like a podcast, a video game, or a TV show. So we want to ask you what is one of your current chilling obsessions?
2: So I've actually just been inhaling the shockwaves podcast.
1: Oh, I don't know that one. Yeah.
2: There are four hosts of the podcast, <laughs> Ryan Turek is one of them. He works for Blumhouse. like I guess he's one of a, a producer and all, all like four people have either reviewed films. a lot of them wrote for Fangoria back in the eighties and nineties. And a bunch of them are continually involved with film. So it's really fun. They spend like the first hour just basically, you know, talking amongst themselves, talking about what movies they watch that week. And a lot of times are these really obscure rewatches from the 80s or 90s. And then they have a guest on afterwards. Yeah, they have like a new episode every week. So they've been a fun
0: listen. That sounds good for horror fans. Yeah, we'll definitely have to check that out. Thank you so much for joining us on this bonus episode and answering all our questions. But before we let you go, we did want to ask you one more question. Where can people find you online?
2: Sure. So I'm on Twitter at Paul G. Tremblay. Instagram, same handle. I have a Facebook fan page as well. So I guess all over all three evil social media platforms.
1: (laughs) It has to be done. So we'll make sure to include information about all your books in our show notes, which is at booksinthefreezer.com. And again, thank you so much for joining us. It's been so much fun getting to hear your answers to all of our random questions. We had so many things we wanted to ask you. So we appreciate you carving out so much time today.
2: Well, thank you, Rachel and Stephanie. This was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. You guys are awesome.
1: Books in the Freezer
0: is a bi-weekly podcast. We post episodes every other Tuesday. You can find us on Twitter at Books Freezer Pod or on Instagram at Books in the Freezer. You can send us an email at booksinthefreezer at gmail.com. Show notes for this episode and all previous episodes will be at booksinthefreezer.com. A special thank you to our Patreon supporters. This wouldn't happen without you. I am Stephanie. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at lady underscore Ganya. That's L-A-D-Y underscore G-A-G-N-O-N or on YouTube at that's what she read.
1: And I'm Rachel. You can find me on Twitter at shades underscore orange or on YouTube and Instagram at the shades of orange. So join us next time for books in the freezer.